0: I just want to say this um, as we dive into the, to week two. Um, you know, the steady diet of what we preach here at Living Word is, is the Bible. You know, we preach God's Word. We seek to preach God's Word verse by verse. And we've been going through the Gospel of John. We started in January of this year. And, and so we, or paused, we paused John to do this series, I felt, led of the Lord to speak to some of the cultural issues that we're, that we're dealing with. But I just want you to hear from me that I believe that what's most important for you to hear is the consistent teaching of God's Word. And so we're going to get back to the Gospel of John in, in January. After this series is done at the end of November, uh, we're going to jump uh, into a Christmas series for, for two or three weeks, and then we'll end the year, and we'll start in January in John chapter 9. And I believe that that is the, the most healthy diet for the believer in Jesus Christ is the consistent teaching of God's Word. But I believe also from time to time it's important for us to, to take a pause and to... To, to maybe dig into different subjects and topics that are, are, are relevant and important for us to think about. And, and always from, from the foundation of God's Word. But I just wanted to, to mention that, that this is not an exposition of Scripture uh, that I did last week or I'm going to do this morning or for the rest of this series. But uh, it is, it's some subjects that I believe are important, and we want to see the biblical perspective on it. And so we are in week two, and if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's message, it really was a foundational message for the, for the rest of this series. So I want to encourage you, we talked last week, uh, I titled the message, How Did We Get Here? And what I was attempting to do and what I wanted to do last week was to kind of paint a picture of how did we get to the place in our culture where truth is upside down, where we have really no definition for truth. Um, and, and it's just we have so many different views of what truth is, and we have news, and then we have fake news, and we have truth, and we have true truth, and, and all these different worldviews that are competing. And so I encourage you to go back to listen to, 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 to that message. But moving forward, this message and the rest of the way, we're going to dig into some specifics as concerning some cultural things that I think are important for me as a pastor and for you as a believer to think about these things. It's important, I believe, That as Christians, as we are navigating uh, our Christian life in a culture, as I talked about last week, that I believe is a modern-day Babylon. It's important for us as Christians to have our minds centered and readjusted on what we believe. You know, there's a lot of things that we believe and we affirm as Christians, and it can be easy in the middle of our culture to be sucked away and sucked into the cultural lives of the enemy. And it's important for us to get our equilibrium straight and to be reminded of what our convictions are so that we can, so we can stand, so that we can stand. And so I've titled the message this morning, The Image of God Under Assault. The Image of God Under Assault. Would you pray with me before we jump in? Father, we come before you this morning and we ask, God, that you would be with us God, as we jump into this message concerning your image, your image bearers, and I pray that, that you would open the, the, the hearts and the minds of all that would be in here to be able to hear your truth concerning uh, who we are as human beings, who we've been designed to be, and, and the preciousness of every image bearer of God. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear these truths and solidify our, our biblical convictions here today. And I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to tell you a story before we j- jump in here. So Billy Graham, this is a true story I'm going to tell you. I listened to him last week. So this is not a made-up story. It's going to sound made-up. I told it to Matt Carnes on Friday. He said, is that a true story? He said, absolutely. So Billy Graham was on an airplane. It wasn't a private plane. wasn't first class. He was just sitting in a regular seat. And there's a passenger that was on the plane that was acting crazy. This, this man, he had been drinking, he was drunk, he was, you know, you know, cursing and making a lot of commotion. And he starts also acting out in ways that are inappropriate. And he, he pinches the stewardess as she's walking down the center aisle. And so in an attempt to get the guy to be quiet, the guy sitting A man sitting next to Billy Graham thinks, well, maybe if this guy back here knows that Billy Graham's on the plane, maybe that'll stop him from acting crazy, right? Billy Graham's on the plane. And so he he turns back and he says, sir, do you realize that Billy Graham is on this plane? He says, oh, he is? He gets up and he walks over and and goes in in the aisle next to Billy Graham and sticks his hand out and says, Billy, it's such an honor to meet you. I just want you to know that your sermons have helped me tremendously. <laughs> Billy Grab was like, oh, wow. Apparently, apparently, your definition of help is different than my definition of help. So I, I say that story. I, I gave you a laugh at the onset of this message. And I, I did that on purpose because um, I wanted you to laugh now because I don't want you to laugh later. Okay? There's going to be some things we're going to talk about that, in particular as concerning gender and identity that are absurd and sometimes when you hear things that are absurd and are completely against reality sometimes the only response you can give is is a laugh but i don't want you to laugh would you, would you not laugh let's not laugh because it's not funny it's it's sad it's um it's tragic to see the places that people find themselves in, in being deceived about ultimate reality. And so let's, let's not laugh. Now, I don't want you to be rigid, and if I do say something funny outside of that context, you, 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 you can laugh. But when it comes to these other subjects, let's just not laugh, because I don't think it's, it's worthy of our laughing. We live in a post-truth world today. We talked about that last week, a post-truth world, a, 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 what, from what some theologians have said, that, that we live in a pre-Christian culture today. It's as if Christ never came, it's as if he never died, it's as if he never was raised from the dead, it's as if he never established his church in the culture today. We live in a post-truth, pre-Christian culture, post-Christian culture, however you want to say it, and in our world today, it's, it's inconvenient to tell the truth now. It's inconvenient to speak basic truth claims and basic claims about reality, about creation, about who we are as human beings. It's inconvenient for us to say those things. It's, it's offensive now to tell the truth. It used to be that you could speak truth about basic reality and it was just normal and common. But now there are basic understandings of who we are as human beings that you can't even speak to those realities without it being offensive. And then you, can, you can't even, you, you, you're not even trying to be offensive. You could just be saying things that are fundamentally true of who we are as human beings and it can be offensive to people. There, there is a, an insanity that rules the day. Seems to be an insanity that is ruling the, the, the views of the culture in America. You, you, you listen to the news and you, you watch the TV shows and you listen to the commentators and, and, and you think, has our world gone mad? I, I, I was going in the car yesterday um, to pick up some, some things uh, at the mall and, and I got in the car and listening to this documentary, this audio documentary of this story and I, and I finished that story and, and on this radio station they, they were talking about this other subject they were going to cover and they were trying to, to study whether dogs can be racist. And, and, and it's, it's true. That this is what they were trying to do and they would stick a dog in the middle of a room and they'd have these, these people that are doing this study. They'd stick different types of pictures in front of the dogs and would gauge their responses to different people and 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 i walked into the house after i got back and i said estelle the world has gone mad i think i've already seen that but here's another it's another example trying to figure out if animals are racist there's an insanity and obvious truths are ignored and 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 in replace of obvious truths we embrace obvious lies we embrace obvious non-reality we ignore fixed reality. You know, fixed reality is what makes the world go, go round. There are fixed universal truths that, that establish our existence. We talked about the, that even last week some, that the, the very world in which we live, the, the, the creation itself, the physical earth, is based upon fixed universal truths that don't change. And because they don't change, we're able to breathe today. Because those fixed universal laws do not adjust and change, we're able to to live and to survive on planet earth. And fixed universal truths are ignored. The laws of nature and science are unchangeable. You may not believe in the law of gravity, but if you get on top of our building after service and you decide to test the law of gravity, it doesn't matter. The law of gravity does not care whether you believe in it or not. It will will impact your life. It will have its effect on you. You know, there are a lot of very important jobs in our world today and careers that depend on fixed universal truths that are unchanging. What about engineers? What about pilots? Aren't you glad that pilots depend on fixed universal laws that are unchanging? I love that as a passenger on an airplane. Astronauts, chemists, doctors, pharmacists. Aren't you glad that pharmacists depend on fixed laws and truths? What about bankers? Right, one plus one always equals two. Right? And, and these are fixed laws, and, and, and you cannot violate natural laws and escape immediate consequences. You violate natural fixed laws, you will have immediate consequences. But in our world today, we, we think we can violate the, the fixed laws of God, and because we don't get immediate consequences, we think it's okay. You know, there really are two basic kinds of truth that are at work today. There's what would be called correspondence truth. And the other one would be mystical truth or mystical reality. What's correspondence truth? Correspondence truth is truth that corresponds to reality. Truth that corresponds to reality. Like this is a pulpit. This is a book. This is a tie. I am a human male. Right? This is truth. Truth that corresponds to what you see around you. That's correspondence truth. But now we have another kind of quote-unquote truth, it's it's a mystical truth, a mystical reality. And this is the belief that whatever you want to believe is true can be true even at the expense of what you see with your senses. And what you see and what what corresponds to reality, it's a mystical reality. And what we want to do is is we want to look at two of the most debated issues right now in our culture. Two of the most debated, there are other hotly hotly debated issues, but... Two areas of reality or correspondence, truth that corresponds to reality. Two areas that are most fundamental to who we are as human beings. And and we'll look today, these two areas would be, we want to talk about human beings in the womb of mothers. And whether or not they are precious and worthy of protection. And then we will look at those babies that are born. Who gets to determine their design? Right? So what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about abortion and the transgender movement. We're going to talk about abortion and gender theory. We're going to talk about what these obvious realities that we see all around us tell us. In a post-truth, pluralistic, relativistic culture, reality can be whatever people decide it to be. But we want to talk about, well, what does reality tell us about babies that are in the womb? And what does reality tell us about the very design of who we are to be as human beings? And we're going to go to God's Word because God's word is where we start to, uh, to understand truth. With God as the center of understanding about meaning and purpose, we must go to his word to, to understand these issues. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God's word says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. And all the fishermen say amen to that, right? And over the birds of the heavens. All you duck hunters, when you duck hunt, you're biblical. And over every living thing, all you hunters, you're biblical when you shoot that deer, right? So two implications from Scripture and then our response. Two implications from Scripture of what we see here, the simple revelation that God is the creator, that God, that, that his creations, is a pinnacle of his creations, male and female, or made in the image of God, and are over and above animal life and plant life, there's a difference be- between humans and animals, right? What, what, what are the two implications that come from Scripture as concerning humanity? And then what is our response to these implications? That's what we're going to do here this morning. So the first implication is this, is that God determines the value of every life. God is the one who determines the value of every life. The biblical account of creation of man and woman is the clearest and most obvious explanation for humanity. For understanding where we came from and the, the 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 value of our life. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, when we see that man and woman were made in the image of God and they were the pinnacle of creation, they are over and above. Uh, plants and animals and, and all other living things. That, that, that is a foundation of where we understand that, that, that God is the one who determines the value of every human being. And why, why is that? It's because that view, that biblical view, corresponds to the realities that we see around us. Animals, dogs can't be racist. Human beings can be racist. Racist. And we're going to talk about that in, in week five. But dogs, animals can't be, can't show racism. That's not, a, that's not even a, a thing that they can even think, but human beings can because we've been created differently than animals. Humans are superior to animals. Humans are of greater worth than animals. I, I, I know you animal lovers, uh, you know, I have a cat. I had a dog. I got rid of the dog. Safely got rid of the dog. I didn't get rid of the dog, but I, I got rid of the dog and gave the dog away to a good home. I have my cat. You know, my, my cat is smart. I have a smart cat, a diva smart cat. That cat knows how to get our attention. And, and literally this morning, as I was getting up before I was getting up to get ready to come to church, she's pawing on a toy box in our room, and she does it all the time when she wants to get out. She just goes and she bangs it and will not Stop until I open the door. So there's some intelligence that is there, but we understand that humans are superior to animals because humans are made in the image of God, Scripture says. Humans can reason at a higher level than animals. And, and, and I just want to say this. I've said this before, and I've gotten in trouble with all the animal lovers, but animals are primarily instinctual beings. They are primarily instinctual beings. Stop feeding your animal and they will stop being loyal to you. They will find a way to get food from someone who will give them food. So built into the creation account is the understanding that human beings are of intrinsic worth. Human beings are of intrinsic worth. Think about this reality, that that we fight for the life of those who are sick. Don't we? We have built into us a, a survival mechanism that God has placed in all of us to to fight to live, to fight to survive, and and we will do that for each other. Even at the expense of our own life, EMTs and police officers and medics and and, 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 and many different fields, they will give their, their very life for the protection of someone else's life. Why? Because every life is precious and valuable and worthy of protection and safety because they are made in the image of God. I mean, what did we just walk to, to? walk through two years ago in 2020 with the COVID pandemic? We fought for life. We protected life, no matter what your opinion is about COVID. And, 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 and there's a lot of a different debate about that whole subject. But, but, but really what you saw was was that when people were dying, we fought to protect, we fought to defend life because we believe humans are valuable. That's what The Bible says, here's another section of Scripture that affirms the intrinsic worth of every life. Psalm 139, God says this about us. For you formed, or or I should say, the psalmist says this about himself concerning God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. There's meaning before there is formation. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Jeremiah 1, the prophet says about himself before, or says about himself from God, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So what, what's happened in our world today? And this is not just the issue, it's not just in the issue of abortion, but there are other things, other areas of our society that we could say that this has happened. What has developed is a subcategory of humans that's, that some will not fight for. There's a subcategory of humans now in our world that some other humans will not fight for. And we see it, don't we? There are approximately 1.2 million abortions that happen every year in America. To the profit of, on average, $415 per abortion, which makes, if you do the math, it makes it $496 million per year business in America, $500 million per year business. A subcategory of humans that we will not fight for. You know, many, many people, even some in the evangelical church, want to make this a complicated issue. They wanna say it's nuanced. They wanna say that there's layers of complications. But you know, it really isn't. It really isn't complicated. It's not been complicated since the beginning of time. The first murder was Cain killing Abel. And we see from the very beginning of human history, life is valued. And the fact that somebody could murder someone else is condemned. A human life is valuable. But now we have a subcategory of humans that we will say that they're not valuable. And it's not more complicated than that. Once we get past the idea that the debate about abortion is complicated, the response for us as society and the re- response for us especially as a church is clear. And I believe as I was thinking about this, it really comes down to one question, I think. One question that you could ask in a few different ways, but here's the one question. The fundamental question is, is the unborn in a woman's womb human? Human? is the unborn in a woman's womb human is it alien is it a plant or an animal is it something else is the fetus at whatever stage it is in from conception to delivery is it human you know human right with dna is it human Studies show us that the the DNA that makes you who you are is established at conception. So is it human? What you will become is there at conception. So it's a simple question. Is the unborn in a woman's womb human? Here's another way to ask the question. At all stages of gestation, is the unborn human? And what about this question? Here's another way to to ask it. Do all humans come into life breathing oxygen the same way? Yeah, you you, you guys are all smart. You see correspondence reality, don't you? Right, right, right. it's, It's reality. If the unborn in a mother's womb is human, then the common reasons for justification for abortion, are not valid. They can't be valid. Right. Go, go back to what we were saying earlier. We fight for human life. We fight for survival and protection of humans. It's built into us. We want to protect fellow human beings. God wired us that way. So what are the common justifications or reasons for killing a human in a mother's womb? I know, I know this is hard to hear, but let's just talk about it. So here are the common reasons for killing a human. If we believe that it is a human at all stages of gestation, I believe it is, what are the common reasons? Well, here's one reason. I don't want a little human. And I I could have said I don't want a little baby, but I I want to use the word human in all of these reasons because it's it's a human. It's a human made in the image of God. Well, one of the reasons is I don't want a little human. There are many people today that don't want a baby. They don't want a human. Well, here's another reason. I, I don't want a little human right, right now. I have a career that I want to pursue. I have goals and dreams for my life, and a little human right now will hinder my life. What about this? I, I don't want this little human because of who the father is. Or I don't want this little human because of how he or she was Conceived. And we're not downplaying the significance of the pain that is connected with those difficult circumstances, whether it's rape or it's incest or any of those reasons. we'll talk about that in our response at the end of this message. But these are reasons that are given. What about this one? I don't want to risk my health because of this little human that's in my womb. Do you you see it? The argument becomes simple and not nuanced. It becomes clear and not complicated when you establish one fundamental truth or you answer one fundamental question. Is the unborn in a mother's womb human? And when I said it earlier, I think that's a good way to phrase it. Is it human or is it alien? Some of you ladies, when you give birth, you think that's an alien. (laughs) How did this happen to me? (laughs) Right? Is it human? Because every fetus is a life, because every fetus is human, we affirm these things. What do we affirm? Because every life in a mother's womb is human. Well, a mother's womb holds a person known, loved, and formed by God. That's what we affirm. A mother's womb holds a person known, loved, and formed by God. The overwhelming number of abortions that happen in America are not because a woman's life is in danger or because of rape. I could have given you all these statistics to that. You can can find those. The overwhelming number of abortions are not because of those issues. But the overwhelming number of abortions are done because a woman's right to choose is elevated above the God-given right of another human to live. Here's another thing that we affirm. Every single person, no matter their stage of life, bears the image of God and possesses value before God. Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. A child is a a reward, not a burden. A child is a blessing, not a curse. Here's another affirmation. Every single person deserves honor and protection. There's another affirmation. God gives government for the good of people and the legislation of morality. God gives government for the good of people and the legislation of morality. Romans 13 tells us that God has given governing authorities the authority. He's given the government the authority to reward good and to punish evil, to reward good and to punish evil. The the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. And so what this tells us is that if the womb contains a human, a person, then we don't have the right to harm that person. Harming another human is is wrong. It's one of the big ten, right? Thou shalt not kill, shall not murder, shall not kill. And the authorities should protect life. God's given the governing authorities the the sword to protect to bless those that are good and to punish those that are evil and it is evil to kill other humans is it not in the womb what's in the womb of a mother when she's pregnant it is a it's a human the authority should protect life and not encourage the destruction of life the leader of our government in America our president does the opposite he is pledged to do the opposite if they gain control of the house and senate on November the 8th he is he has inverted his responsibility he has turned upside down his responsibility from God to protect the life of every human being what is in the womb of every mother it's a human and when the leader of our country says that if we gain control of the house and senate it will be a mandate for him To federalize abortion. So I want to end this first point with some personal, just two, two personal stories. Just want to say this. My brother was born eight weeks early. I know that's not relatively, extremely early, but he was two pounds, six ounces at birth. And my mom fit into the category of a mom's life being at risk. And she had life threatening complications before she gave birth. And the nurses and the doctor told her, You need to abort your baby at 32 weeks because your life is on the line. And I just want to say, She said, No, no, I, I'm gonna either God, God will take me or my baby's gonna make it, or it's in God's hands. My life is in God's hands. And my brother Andrew is, he's 30, I think he's 35 years old now, 34 years old, and he's healthy and strong, has three kids of his own, and is living a beautiful life. My nephew Jonathan, my sister, had birth of a a young man. If you remember, it was a while back, but she gave birth to him, and he was born at 28 weeks. He was two pounds, one ounce. And my, my sister Naomi had severe preeclampsia. Her blood pressure, the doctor said, was the highest he'd ever seen without somebody having a stroke. It was 201 over 123. She also had a condition called Press. So it's a brain condition in the back of her brain that it kept swelling. It kept swelling, and that the reason it kept swelling was because her blood pressure was high because of this pregnancy, and she could have gone blind. And, and there was never an option in her mind to abort Jonathan. And Jonathan now, he's, you know, some of you follow my sister on Facebook, and she puts videos of Jonathan on Facebook all the time, almost every day, precious little Jonathan. You know, those two stories could be told multiple times over in this room, For your kids and your grandkids story after story yeah yeah my my brother my sister or or my life personally i i could have been aborted right this story could be told multiple times over in this room and why would we tell those stories it's because we see that as a celebration of the fact that every life is worthy of dignity and honor and protection because we believe every life is a human that that god has given that should be protected So on a side note, as we wrap up this first thought about human beings and the argument about abortion, many people will argue that all Christians have is the Bible to argue against abortion. All you have is the Bible. You're just using God's word. You're not using science, and you're not, you know, so you just have a simple argument, and all you have is the Bible. And they're right. And we believe that's ultimately all we need. Why? Because the Bible, the biblical view of creation itself, the physical earth, and the biblical view of humanity and where we came from and what is wrong with humanity, the biblical view corresponds to reality. It corresponds to what we see. So yes, that's all we have is the Bible. And, and, and just I just want to say this, that it is all we have, and it is what we use, and it is what is the foundation for how we view the world But I also want to say this, if Gavin Newsom, as I talked about last week, uses the Bible to justify the murder of innocent human beings, then it is our responsibility to rightly use the Scriptures to defend life. Yeah, you can clap. Not, 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 Not because I said it, but because it's true. God determines the value of every life. We don't have the prerogative to play God. And I'm I'm going to talk at the end of this message, our response. And I know there's some difficult subjects connected with abortion. And just hang in there for all your thoughts that are, you're spinning around with some thoughts. Just hang tight, okay? God determines the value. And secondly, what's the next affirmation we see from the biblical account of creation? God determines the design of every life. He determines the design, the value of every life, and the design. Look back at Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Make other image bearers, other humans, and fill the earth. Fill the earth. It's natural and normal for men and women to get married and to have babies it is abnormal for men and women to come together and not have babies that's biblical god made male and god made female he created distinctions and he defines gender have you ever ever heard of the show i, I was a, maybe even a decade ago There was a show that came out are you smarter than a fifth grader you guys remember that show how many times did you watch that show and you think, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not on that show? I would be shown to be not smarter than a fifth grader, or not even on the level of a fifth grader. You know, around the subject of gender and identity, I think another way to phrase it is in this subject, are you smarter than a pre Again, correspondence, truth, reality. There's truth we see in reality that's obvious. Are you smarter than a pre-care? My, I have a pre-care that lives in my house. He knows what he is. He knows. He, he didn't need me to tell him. He can look in the mirror when he's or around the house when he's running around without his clothes after the bath. He knows who he is. You know the question that should be asked if we're going to have a show, it would be, here's the real question: Are you smarter than God? Right? Because God wove into our DNA, into our biology, the foundation of who we are. Males have XY chromosomes and females have XX chromosomes. And our bodies tell us who we were designed to be. Our differences are beautiful. Wives and husbands, do you always feel like the, the differences that you have are beautiful? Not always, do you? But our differences are beautiful. Our differences make us distinct. Our our distinctions are good by design. And in our mother's womb, those distinctions were taking shape when we were knit together and woven together in our mother's womb. So, So why are we in this mess in our culture right now? Why are we here? Well, here's why we're here. What do sinful human beings do with God's very good design? We corrupt it. We pollute it. We change it. We make it into whatever we desire. God created the earth, and we worship it. God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the trees, and the oceans. And what do we do as human beings? We worship it. Right? God created us in his image and gives us distinctions as male and female. And what do we do? We say, no, that's not true. That's not right. That's not good. And we seek to change it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, for they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What does Romans 1 tell us? This has been the struggle since the creation, since the garden, since Adam and Eve Human beings want autonomy over their life. God planted Adam and Eve. He created Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden, and said here's the one tree that you can eat from and all the other trees you can't eat from. And what did Adam and Eve say? What did Eve say when she was deceived and whenever Adam was irresponsible? What, what did they say? They said, I want to do life my way. God said, here is the way, here is the way for you to live here are my commands. And they say, no, I don't want your commands. Human beings want autonomy over their life. They want to be able to determine their own reality. You know, you've heard the phrase, I am the captain of my ship and the, the captain of my destiny. And Jesus is my co-pilot mindset. People don't want to submit to God's authority. So what has sinful humanity done to God's good design concerning gender distinctions? What, what do we see right now? We've sought to erase them. We have sought to ignore them. We've sought to change them. Let's just just think about this. You think about the issue of abortion. You think about the issue of gender. Think about marriage we're going to talk about next week. The very fabric of what makes us who we are as human beings, the enemy is incessantly trying to destroy Being born, being a man or a woman, the sanctity of marriage, the enemy seeks to obliterate all of it because the implications of that foundation being destroyed leads to so much brokenness and so much pain in our society. And don't we see it? Don't we see it? So what I want to do here is I want to... to, answer some questions. Maybe some of you have not studied the, the, the history of gender theory, gender identity. I'm going to give you a little history. So what is gender theory? What is queer theory? What is gender identity? Well, gender theory is a subset. Listen, follow me. Gender theory is a subset of critical theory. Gender theory is a subset of critical theory. There's an umbrella of critical theory, and and there's critical theory concerning race, critical theory theory concerning marriage and gender, and critical theory proponents are looking to destroy all foundational societal structures because they view them as oppressive. And so some of the ones, critical theory proponents, some of the foundational societal structures that are in the crosshairs, our traditional marriage. We're going to talk about that next week. Family and marriage. And then gender. Gender is in the crosshairs. This is a, I mean, again, as I said earlier, this is foundational to, to who we are. And critical theory says, no, we can't have that because that's oppressive. How can you tell somebody that they have to be the way that they clearly are? You can't do that. That's oppressive. So, so, so what are the gender theory basics? It should be on the screen here for you. This is the idea of gender theory. Gender is no more regarded as a binary. Binary meaning, you know, bound, bi- binary. There's a, a right and a wrong. There's a clear uh, um, way in which it should be and not be. Gender is no more regarded as a binary concept, concept which one can either be a male or a female. It has emerged, gender has emerged as a continuum or a spectrum where one can identify themselves as any of the gender identities. The term gender identity means how a person identifies themselves concerning their gender. A person may identify themselves as male, female, none, both, or some other category independent of their genitals. The idea is to make everyone feel comfortable in their skin, irrespective of what gender they were assigned at birth. The view of gender now is that it is assigned at birth. You remember, you know, back in the day, I don't, if, I don't know if with my kids, this was not done when all four of my kids uh, were, were born. Uh, they didn't, the baby didn't come out of the womb and they, the doctor didn't slap him on the hiding and say, Ah, it's a boy! Ah, it's a girl! What's happening there when the doctor slaps the hiding and looks at the private parts of the baby? Is he assigning the gender at birth or, or is he acknowledging the gender at birth? What do we do when we have ultrasounds? What are you looking for? When you want to know what the gender of your baby is, when you look at the ultrasound, oh, I see a part. The doctor's not going, I know I see a part that would seem to be that that might be a male, but, but I don't want to put that oppressive boundary on that child so they can decide later what they want to be. Do you guys follow that? So what, So this, is, this right here, this idea of, of multiple gender identities, this is from an article that, that's not old. It's July 6, 2022, a Woman's Health Magazine online article. There are approximately, according to gender identity theorists, 68 ways in which a person can express their gender identity. I'm not going to list the 68 ways. I'm going to give you some of the highlights. Here's some of the ideas of gender identity. You can be cisgender. This is somebody who identifies with their assigned sex at birth. Transgender. Someone who does not identify with their assigned sex at birth. Non-binary. Someone who doesn't identify as either male nor female. They don't want to be bound to either one. Gender fluid. Someone who prefers to express either or both maleness or femaleness so that they can vary from day to day. It's fluid, right? It goes back and forth. Gender non-conforming. Someone who wants the creativity to express their identity apart from gender stereotypes. So this would be maybe sometime men, some men want to paint their fingernails. And they would say, well, well, in society today, women paint fingernails. So someone who's gender nonconforming would be someone, well, I'm going to paint my fingernails as a man because I don't want to be conformed and be oppressed by the gender stereotypes. You guys follow that? Omnigender is another option. Someone who flows back and forth moment by moment to the gender they feel is most... Authentic. And here's the sad one. This was, this was the last one on the list. And when, when, when I read it, my heart was just burdened. Gender void. Gender void. This is, this is really a part of the list of 68. Gender void. Someone who has a lack of gender identity and has a sense of void. Sense of, another way it was phrased in that article is a sense of blackness, emptiness. What is fundamental what is basic, what is so simple to understand, when we disconnect our thinking from God's word, it brings so much confusion. I mean, if I would have listed all those possibilities, and that, that list is going to continue to grow from 68 to 108, because there's no end in sight. When we're disconnected from God, His word. So, but but where did this idea of gender identity—that you could have a different view inwardly of how you feel—that doesn't line up with how you were designed? It comes from a man named John Money, Dr. John Money. He was the father of gender theory. He wrote a book in 1972 called "Man and Woman, Boy and Girl." It's a disgusting book. In his book, he highlighted one case as a breakthrough in his research. He is famous for encouraging a mom and a dad to raise a boy as a girl after a botched circumcision. So, a boy named David Reimer was born in, as a botched circumcision. And so, John Money, this is in the 60s, he felt like, oh, this is an opportunity for me to practice on a real life person and case here. Let me encourage a doctor, a robe, right? A doctor's gown looks at very vulnerable parents and says, hey, I think the best course of action for you is to raise this boy as a girl. So they did that. And David Reimer eventually found out. You can read, you can find it online if you search John Money and David Reimer. And, and, and he tells a story. He even came on Oprah, and I think in 1998, and he was as a man. But all throughout his childhood, he, something was off, something wasn't right. And they, he would, they, 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 they grew out his hair, they made him wear dresses, and he eventually started wearing makeup, and he kissed. He kissed a a, a boy when he was trying to uh, figure out who he was, and he realized he didn't like that, didn't enjoy it. He was always drawn to things that people would say, well, that makes you a tomboy, and that's what his parents would tell him. Well, you're just a tomboy, but inwardly, naturally, something wasn't right, and so eventually he pressed through and forced them to tell him what had happened. And so then he decided as a teenager to live as he should be living as as a man. And tragically, what happened to David Reimer is in 2004, he killed himself. At 38 years old, his life, he felt, was destroyed, and he had that sense of void in him, right? Dr. Money also was a known believer. You can, I don't encourage you to read his books, but he's a known believer in pedophilia. He encouraged parents to experiment with their own children. He had another book written with another scientist, doctor guy, so-called Dr. This is the founder, the father. This is the, the Dr. John Money and others like him are the founder of the idea of gender identity. And he and his books, he's since been he's since dead, but his books have influenced the modern view of pediatric care for children who have gender dysphoria. Dr. John Money and his books. I read a book called Irreversible Damage written by Abigail Shearer, and she studied the, moder, the modern gender identity movement as well as the gender transition and surgery movement, reassignment movement. And she lays out the heartbreaking results. So-called doctors who were influenced by men like Dr. Money and others are ready to help adolescent children make life-altering decisions about their gender. And often, story after story, she records in her book, real-life examples, often the doctors do it behind the backs of the parents and principals and teachers will hide what's what, you know what's really going on at the school and the and the the, the adolescent the child wants to identify as the opposite gender at school and they don't tell the parents. It's happening in public schools today. Today, that's happening in public schools. And this idea of gender-affirming care, Abigail Shearer in her book brings this out in detail. Gender-affirming care is the standard of care for all, for for the majority, not all, for the majority of pediatric uh, uh, doctors in all the realms of medicine concerning children. And what gender-affirming care is, is that is that gender-affirming care says that, that when a child comes in, an 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old comes in and they're confused, they have gender dysphoria, they're, they're, they're confused about their identity, that if they believe and they affirm that they think they're the opposite gender, the standard of care is that that doctor, that psychologist, psychiatrist, would affirm that before they help them walk through it. So if they want to be called an opposite name, if they want to be, have their pronouns change, gender-affirming care is the standard. Of care. Do you guys follow that? You know what's interesting about that? That's the standard of care right now in America. It's interesting, just before I preached this message, about a month or so ago, the UK went the route of gender-affirming care years ago, as America did, and has now put a halt to it. You can find this on the internet. They put a halt to this broad approach because these, these statistics are showing the great harm that this approach is having on kids, Obviously. Were you confused when you were going through puberty? Yeah, you were confused when you were going through puberty. You said no, but yeah, you were confused. You're like, what in the world's happening to my body? Man, that hormones are rushing through your body. What is happening in my life? And when somebody's at the very critical juncture, a child's at that very critical moment in their life, and maybe, and I think especially because there's so many influences in this area, when a 10, 11, 12 year old gets on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram and they're following those who have already transitioned and changed their gender. That vulnerable adolescent child is encouraged to go that direction because this influencer who is hiding all the pain they went through to get to the point to where they are is glamorized. So this article from the New York Times about the UK, they said that they are overhauling their medical care for transgender youth. The National Health Services in England... It was the sole youth gender clinic. They're shutting it down right now until they can do more research. So what about our country? What's happening in our country? Maybe you heard it last week. We now have a president who sits with a man named Dylan Mulvaney pretending to be a girl, a woman. The president of the United States who has flipped morality on its head hosts Dylan Mulvaney, a man, in the White House, gives him an interview with some other people and this is what they talk about Dylan Mulvaney you can find on YouTube he asked the president he says is it wrong for states to block gender affirming treatment and care puberty blockers hormone treatment surgery top surgery other surgeries is it wrong for states to block gender affirming care and treatment The president said this. The president said it is immoral for people or states to block gender transition treatment. Now now think about this. What is the president actually saying? Don't miss it. Gender transition treatment is only blocked for children in our country without parental consent. So what our president is saying is that not providing gender-affirming treatment for children is immoral. This is an attack on our kids. Just as abortion is an attack on a human life, this is an attack on our kids. The kids, listen, it's an attack on our kids in our country. And some of you think, Pastor Ben, why are you preaching on this? Go back to the Bible well, I just want you to know, we don't live in a bubble. We don't live in a vacuum. This is happening in our world, and it is tragic. The children of our nation, the children in our schools, and the children in our living rooms are under attack. And the loudest voices in our society are the voices who control and put out the media content. Hear me. They are determined to change this generation's baseline understanding of morality and sexuality. They're determined to do it. They want a complete reestablishing of the very foundations of what it means to be human. And you know what really is behind it? It's Satan. Satan can't get to God, but he's attacking the image bearers of God inside the womb and outside of the womb. Through those who are willing vessels of his sinister his sinister schemes. God determines the value of every life. And God determines the design of every life. Those are the implications of the Genesis creation account. What is our response? Thirdly, what is our response? What do we do? We're here, we're living, we're Christians. What do we do? What is our response? Well, I think there's just simple responses, straightforward. We must be faithful, we must be compassionate, and we must be proactive. We must be faithful, we must be compassionate, and we must be proactive. When it comes to the issues of God's design for human life, we must be clear because the Bible is clear. Are we Christians? Are you a Christian? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? Some Christians, I don't think they know if they believe the Bible or not. Right? The Bible's clear on every issue. It's not nuanced. There's hardly, there's no issue concerning morality that is nuanced in the Bible. It's clear. We just, we make it nuanced because we don't like it. Isn't that true? We're going to talk about it next week. Fornication and adultery sin, but we don't like it. Some of you are not going to come next week because you don't want to hear about fornication and adultery. Pornography, right? We don't like it. It's nuanced. It's not. The Bible's clear. We have to be faithful if we're Christians. Are we Christians? Right? Kevin DeYoung, he wrote an article on what happens whenever Christians or Christian preachers go downward, the downward spiral of ditching their belief about morality and sexuality. What happens? How does that happen? Here what an article called From Silence to Complexification to Capitulation. From Silence to com- Complexification to Capitulation. What does that mean? It means this. First, there's silence. This is what happens. This is the progression. First, there's silence. The evangelical leader or publication or institution that used to be clear on matters of sexuality and marriage just don't talk about the issues anymore. Stop. We can't talk about it anymore. Next comes complexification. Even though the church around the globe for virtually two millennia had no trouble coming to settled and universal convictions about these issues, now questions, homosexuality, and sexual differentiation become hopelessly complicated. It's just too complicated. They're silent. It's too complex. Then there is usually an explicit pivot to other issues. There's a deliberate move to ignore the swirling sexual vortex threatening to destroy everything in its path. Let's just talk about other things. The next stage, we see more frustration. Listen, this is so important. We see more frustration with those pointing out the sin than those committing the sin. Why why are you talking about it? It's so frustrating that Christians want to talk about it. I'm going to get to that in just a minute why we talk about it. All the sympathy now leans towards the revisionist side. Here's here's the next step. Along the way, a canon within a canon develops. Okay, so what that means is that a canon, the canon of Scripture is a measuring stick of truth. That's how we measure truth. So around these issues of sexuality and gender and morality, a new standard develops. Scripture no longer functions as an inerrant and unified whole. Careful exegesis or interpretation disappears in the background as slogans and buzzwords take center stage. It's a downward spiral. At the same time, next step, the arguments become intensely personal and privatized. This is what happens. The discussion is focused on friends we know and people we've talked to. We often hear of how traumatized to the point of possible self-harm people are in our midst and how the orthodox position is to blame. You guys see that? Here's the final step. Finally, the newfound enlightenment is acknowledged and celebrated. When formerly evangelical Christians or leaders or organizations and institutions reach this point, there is no more talk about how good it feels. Excuse me, there is much talk about how good it feels to finally be on the side of love and inclusion. So, what's our response? We must be faithful to God's word. Secondly, we must be compassionate. Those who are lost in these movements are not our enemy. Those who have had an abortion need our love and our care. Because if every life is a human life and we want to protect every human life and defend every human life and every life is valuable, we want to fight for the unborn, but we want to fight for the freedom and healing of the women who feel like they have no other option. They need our love and our care. And those who are confused about their gender identity, experiencing gender dysphoria, they need our patience and our discipleship. And as discouraging as it is, as angry as we may become because of the dishonoring of God, we see we must not give in to anger. The Bible says that, doesn't it? James 1, 19, know this, my beloved brothers, Sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Have a conversation with people, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Walking in anger at the culture because of them living in the way that they can't help but live, in rebellion against God, being angry doesn't produce righteousness. Rather, Ephesians four fifteen, rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head unto Christ. Speak the truth in love. You know, I've heard it said, am about to close here, I heard it said, hear it said often that the world only knows what we are against, not what we're for. You've you, 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 You've heard that? And that argument, that line of thinking is used to say, well, you shouldn't talk about the issues because they only know what we're against, not what we're for. Can I I flip that idea here for a second? What What are we against? We are against people being held captive in bondage to lies. We are against image bearers of God needlessly walking in deception and destroying their life. We are against people dying in their sins and going to a literal hell. We are against them walking in continued pain and suffering because of their open rebellion against God. We are against that, and we are for their redemption. We are for their forgiveness. We are for their healing, right? The church needs to know what we're against, and they need to know what we're for. They need to know that because of what we're for, That the things that we say is sin is the way in which they can find freedom and forgiveness. You guys get that? We must be faithful. We must be compassionate. And here's the last one. We must be proactive. We must be proactive in our support of crisis pregnancy clinics. We must be proactive in our support of women who are struggling with unwanted pregnancies. We must be proactive in support of foster care and adoption. We must be proactive. There are so many children right now that need foster care and adoption. Maybe God's calling you to that. There's a crisis pregnancy center that we support that's in our community. I pray that you would support it personally. I pray that you would do what you can to support that clinic. And parents, we must be proactive in the protection of our kids against this critical theory movement that's trying to indoctrinate the next generation. You must be proactive. I want to read something. This is from a book I commend to you. We will not be silenced by Erwin W. Lutzer. Listen to what he says about parents and children. Perhaps nowhere do we see the work of Satan in America as clearly as we do in the sexualization of children, destroying their identity, confusing their gender, and creating unresolved guilt and self-hatred. And through laws and coercion, the education of America's youth is being taken out of the hands of parents and placed in the hands of secular educators. As MSNBC host Melissa Harris Perry said, quote, we have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. That should scare the daylights out of you, right? Wow. That's the agenda. Parents, we must be alert. We must be awake. That is the agenda, and it's not changing. And so, parents, I just want to encourage you, if you are not monitoring your kids' social media presence, Instagram, here's the the main ones, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. There's others. I don't keep up with all of them, but those are the ones that are the main ones. That your kids are on. They're not on Facebook. Some of the old souls may be on Facebook. <laughs> You're on Facebook trying to track your kids, but they're on TikTok. If you give your kids unhindered access to the internet and social media, you are asking for the gates of hell to be opened up for the mind of your kids. <clears throat> Abigail Shearer's book, Irreversible Damage, she says, in her studies, of all the girls that she studied, all the transgender kids she studied, the number one influencer, she says, is social media. The number one influence of kids to be confused about their gender and to embrace the transgender gender identity idea is through social media, number one. And internet, broadly. Parents, we have to be Proactive. We have to be proactive. They will not stop in their goal of completely redefining all of our our society's remaining Judeo-Christian values. We must be proactive in support of pro-family and pro-life leaders in our community and in our country. We must, hear me, me. we must be proactive in our support of pro-family and pro-life leaders in our communities and in our country. I won't tell you who to vote for, right now but I'll tell you who to vote for when I turn the mic off you can come talk to me right down here yeah. on November 8th it's real simple pro-life pro-life <laughs> you know there's an idea out there that I can't say that I actually can say that I can say that here's, here's the last way in which you should be proactive we must be proactive in prayer. So what's our response? Because, you, you know, again, we could leave here thinking, oh, Lord, where are we at? How do we get out of this? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We don't, we don't storm capitals. We don't storm capitals. We don't break into homes, Nancy Pelosi's home. We don't, we don't do that. We don't wield hammers and guns to try to get our political way, our moral No, we pray. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. Children of God, we must pray. We must be active in prayer because our dependence is on God's power. Amen? I end with this, Psalm 127.1. Our dependence is on God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord, you want to know what that verse is about? It's unless the Lord, unless the Lord, unless the Lord. He is our dependence. He is our power. He is our strength. We have to be faithful to preach the truth. Preach it with compassion. Don't be mean. Don't be hateful with your words and your language. The truth will offend The truth will offend. May we not offend. People will get offended at you. People are offended at me right now in this room. And those that will watch it will be offended at me when they watch it later. But prayerfully, I wasn't offensive in the way that I brought the truth. Clarity will be offensive to people who don't want the clear truth. And that's okay. I'm going to preach about this in week six. The message is offensive, and that is the way it's meant to be. Only offended, only an offended person can come to salvation. Did you know that? You got offended, and then you got saved. Unless the Lord does it, amen? We must be proactive in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we, we thank you for your truth. God, you have made truth easy to see. You've woven truth into society, into humanity, into creation. You know, these particular issues, the issue of the unborn and the need for their protection and their safety and the issue of gender, sexuality, and the way that we are created by our creator, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. And may we not privatize the conversation and personalize it to the point where because it's my brother, it's my sister, it's my son, it's my daughter, it's, it's this relationship and they're good people. And May we not privatize it and may we not abandon our convictions because of personal reasons. God, may we be faithful if we're truly Christians. May we be Christians in every area of our life. May our convictions not be for sale. And God, may we as a church not give up on all those who are battling in these areas. Maybe some in this room have battled in this area specifically with gender and identity and they struggled for years or, or they, they know friends and family that are struggling. God, I, God, we pray for them, that they would be free from this, this thinking that is motivated from the God of this world, Satan, who wants to, to usurp God's authority over that person's life, wants to destroy their life ultimately temporally here on earth, but eternally. I pray that you would save those that are bound. God, I pray for the women that are struggling with unwanted pregnancies in our community. I pray that you would give them hope. or bless the crisis pregnancy center in our community. Bless the woes that lead it and help us to be a part of that solution. Lord, we need you. We need your power. Unless you move, we have no May we be faithful, may we be compassionate, and may we be proactive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.